Apparently, I just need to remember Jack's rule. If you're leading, you just do what, you, do what I say, okay? I'll, I'll remember that for next time, next time. Good evening. Hope you guys are having a great day. Glad that we are back, back to be able to be together tonight uh, to worship and to study God's Word. Tonight, we're going to start a study of the book of Daniel. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Daniel. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are some black, black books on the back of the pew in front of you, and it starts on page 737. So you can turn to the book of Daniel. Again, uh, glad that we can be here together. Glad that we can worship God. Glad that we can spend some time together. Uh, the book of Daniel is a rich book, and I hope that uh, maybe you've studied it before. There is a lot of, of it. Uh, most of us know the first three chapters, especially chapters one and three, maybe chapter five as well. When we think about Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and the different things that they are a part of, and we'll talk about those certainly tonight. We're in Daniel chapter one, so we'll talk about some familiar stuff, but there's also some stuff in Daniel that's not very familiar, and some of it that's a little weird, uh, so we'll get to that, and we'll see what applications we can make and things that we can learn from God's word uh, when we get to those points uh, tonight and probably most of the time when we're going to do this study of the book of Daniel uh, we will not have an invitation be a little bit more Bible class like uh, won't really be a whole lot of back and forth but hopefully uh, just digging into God's word and seeing what we can learn and appreciate and apply to our lives uh, like I said tonight especially in Daniel chapter 1 you most of us are, again, pretty familiar with this, but I hope that you will be able to draw some things, uh, certainly that we know and remind ourselves about, but maybe even learn some things that we haven't thought about uh, before. I'm using a book primarily for this study uh, that's written by uh, Michael Whitworth, who's a member of the church. Uh, it's, he's got two books, actually. He's got a, uh, a study book for the book of Daniel that I'll be using, and then also a book called The Derision of Heaven. That's The Derision of Heaven. If you want to get those books and read along with me, you're certainly welcome to. I think it will be a blessing to you. So if you want to see me afterwards and ask me about those books again, you can. Uh, in the book of Daniel, let's see where we're at from a historical perspective when we think about the Old Testament. Uh, the Assyrians, which was the, the great empire, uh, they have already come and taken away the northern tribe, the northern ten tribes, the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity. And some years later, Babylon takes over. They revolt against the Assyrians. Uh, they become the major power in the world. Uh, they have a battle just previous to Daniel uh, with the Egyptians that really sets them up as the premier power in the region, perhaps even in the world. They are the most powerful kingdom definitely in and around Jerusalem and Israel, uh, perhaps in the entire world. And they come after this uh, victory against the Egyptians and they besiege the city of Jerusalem. Uh, Judah, with uh, its two tribes, uh, the kingdom of Judah is still remaining. Uh, they have not been faithful, but they were a little more faithful than the ten tribes of the kingdom of Israel. Uh, and that's why they were allowed a little bit longer uh, to be free. Uh, they besiege uh, Jerusalem, because Jerusalem and Israel or Judah had been uh, paired up and, and allied with the Egyptians, uh, and now they're going to be paired up and allied with, not so much by choice, with the Babylonians. And during this time, this initial siege, some of the um, young men of the royal line and of the nobility are going to be taken into captivity. That's, again, Daniel chapter 1. And then later on, uh, in 586 B.C., so that's in 605 B.C., and then approximately 20 years later or so in 586 B.C., uh, Jerusalem is going to be sacked. It's going to be conquered. The temple is going to be burned and destroyed, uh, the first temple. And, uh, and that's really kind of the end of what we think of as Old Testament Judaism uh, before the exile happened. So that's kind of where we're at. 
uh, going into the exile, when you think about the exile, you'll think about Daniel, you'll think about Ezra, you'll think about Nehemiah, Jeremiah, the prophet writes before, during, and after the exile. So those are the books of the Bible that we'll be talking about a little bit, and we will be flipping back and forth a little bit between some of those books uh, even tonight. So let's start. Daniel chapter 1. Starting in verse 1, there are names that are hard to say. I will mispronounce them. I expect grace and mercy. All right, here we go. Uh, in the third year of the reign of Jeho- Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. So it starts out on a very bad note. Uh, and, and particularly, it almost gives us the idea that even God himself is powerless because this foreign army, this foreign king, these foreigners who are definitely idolaters and they're evil idolaters, they have come into and, and taken over, sacked, taken away some nobility. We'll read about that here in just a second. But they've even gone into the temple of God and taken away some of the treasures of the temple of God. It says King Nebuchadnezzar took those out of the temple of the Hebrews' God and took them to the land of Shinar and put those same treasures into the temple or the treasury of his God. So it seems as if almost God is impotent. He's powerless. There's nothing that he can do in this instance. But did you notice what it said? Did you notice what it said at the beginning of verse 2? And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into King Nebuchadnezzar's hands. God is at work, even in this seemingly very difficult situation, even in this seemingly, probably, no doubt, if you were in Jerusalem, if you were a part of the kingdom of Judah, you would think, where is God? Why isn't God doing something? Why isn't God acting? Uh, And we see, uh, when we think about this, there's probably uh, two options that we would normally think about. If we were uh, in this position, um, maybe certainly then, or if we were in such a position today, we generally think of two different options. Either you can resist and revolt, okay, these Babylonians are coming in, they're more powerful than we are, we held out for as long as we can. Yes, they're taking over now, and and they're even going to put a a puppet king in place, uh, and they're going to say he's our king, and and he's a part of this lineage of of our kings, but really, they're in control now, so we're going to resist, we're going to revolt, we're going to even perhaps act violently, or, and there were some people like this, uh, we could give in. And we could align ourselves with the Babylonians. You would think about the tax collectors in the New Testament period. that They would have been people who uh, aligned themselves and gave in to the conquering kingdom. And there were people in both sides in the day of Daniel, some that revolted and resisted, and some of them did that violently, certainly. And some of them gave in and, and, and bought into the ideas of the Babylonians and accepted their culture and accepted their ways and even accepted their gods. Look at verse number 3. It says, then the king said to Asphanaz, the um, king of the chief of the officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal seed and the nobles. And of course, this is where we get Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah going to Babylon. The king asked, hey, give me their best and brightest. Anybody who's a part of the royal line or even any a part of any nobility line, they are going to come and they're going to serve at my feet. They're going to be my servants in my kingdom. Now, why do you do that? Well, it's psychological warfare, isn't it? You take their best and their brightest. You think, think they're even, even their best-looking people, their strongest, and you take them away from their home base so they can't even defend their home anymore. They can't revolt anymore because now they're taken away some 900 or so miles 
They're taken away and now they're servants to this king. So the people who are left are generally going to be the feeble, the elderly, or those who are considered not to be of the best quality. So they're not leaving the best and the brightest, the strongest, the most able body there. They're leaving a force, they're leaving a population that even a limited force could fairly easily control. It's psychological warfare, but it's also a physical warfare. So again, there's two options that we generally think about. What are you going to do if you're in Jerusalem during this time? What are you going to do if you're part of this group of people that's taken over into Babylon? You can resist, you can revolt, you can give in, or you can adopt. You can resist or you can adopt and accept the fact that you've been conquered. But then in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 11, we see a third option. Turn over there in your Bibles. Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 11. I want you to see this. It's a powerful section of this passage. Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 11. Again, Jeremiah is written and and he is prophesying. He is a prophet during the time of this exile. And in the book of Jeremiah, he writes some letters or it records some letters that he writes to those in exile. He is in Jerusalem, but he writes letters to the people who are in exile in Babylon. In Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 11, there's a third option. And this is important for us today because we are supposed to be, Peter tells us, he encourages us, he urges us to live as strangers and aliens or as exiles in the land in which we dwell. And that's in America, and that's in Russia, and that's in Africa, and that's in Europe, and that's everywhere. Because we, this is not our home, we're just a passing through, right? We are exiles, we are strangers and aliens on this earth. So the message that he gives to those exiles in Babylon is the same message that we have here today. How do we live for God in the midst of a conquering kingdom that is not of our kingdom? In the midst where there's a powerful being, a powerful force that is against what we believe. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, this is Jeremiah 29, 4, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile, God again owns this, he says, I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat their fruit, take wives and become the father of sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the peace of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for it in its peace you will have peace. We'll read some more, but listen to this. We, you can either resist and revolt or you can accept and adopt is generally what we think about when we're in such a situation. But Jeremiah offers a third option. He says, be loyal but subversive. Be loyal but subversive. He's telling these people who are in exile, hey, you need to get comfortable. We'll talk about why here in a second. He says, build houses and get married and have kids and plan for your kids to get married. Uh, You need to get comfortable in this situation that you're in. You need to go on with your life. And then he also says, and pray for the peace of the city in which you live. What does that mean? He tells these exiles that are his people, pray for the Babylonians. Pray for their peace. Pray for the good of your enemies. That sounds an awful lot like Jesus. Pray for the good of your enemies. And he says, because in their peace, you will find peace. In their good, you will find good. Again, that sounds a lot like Jesus. It sounds a lot like Paul when he talks about praying and making intercessions for people who are in power and leading a quiet life and making that your ambition. 
So a third option. It's not, it's not revolting. It's not outright violent revolt. And it's not an acceptance of, of things that are against God. But instead, it is okay. This is the situation I am in. What am I going to do about it? Well, I'm going to seek the good of the people who are my enemies. And I'm going to try to make them better people. What if we did that in our world? What if we sought good for the people who are our enemies and we're going to try to make them better people? Is that what we should do in America? Shake your heads like this. That is exactly what we should do in America. We should pray for the good of people who we disagree with and seek to make them better people. Politically, socially, religiously, in every form and fashion. Seek what is good for them. Do good to them. And also seek to do and make them and help them to become better people. Let's keep reading. Verse 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your, and your diviners deceive you and do not listen to your dreams which you dream. Okay, so this gives us a little bit of context. Again, uh, these are the people who are in exile from Jerusalem. They're in Babylon. Before that happened, and you go back to chapter 14 and verse 13 of Jeremiah, there were some people saying, hey, this Nebuchadnezzar guy, he is nothing special. There's no way that he will ever conquer us. And well, guess what happened? He conquered them. You look in, in chapter 28 and verse 2, just right before this, there's another guy named Hananiah, not the same Hananiah as our guys who are in Babylon, but another prophet of God. He is a prophet of God, but he's prophesying some false prophets. He's making some false prophecies. Uh, and what he says is, hey, in two years, all those people who got taken away, they're going to come back and God is going to break the yoke of King Nebuchadnezzar. And Jeremiah says, because the Lord tells him, hey, God didn't say that. That's a good idea. And in and, and, and his response to him in, in chapter 28, Jeremiah even says to Hananiah, hey, may that happen. I hope that does happen. I hope in two years that all those people who are taken away, I hope they're all brought back. But God didn't tell you that, Hananiah. Why are you telling us that? And also in Babylon, there are some prophets who are there that are telling those people the very same thing. And so Jeremiah tells them, hey, that's not going to happen. You need to go ahead and build some houses. Hey, you need to go ahead and get married. Hey, you need to go ahead and have some kids. You're going to be there a while. You need to plan on having grandkids. You need to go ahead and make these plans and, and dedicate yourself to the Lord. And you need to get comfortable. Here's the reality. We live in this world, and this is the world we live in. We've got to get used to it. We've got to accept that. And we've got to live for God in this world, just like they had to live for God in Babylon. Let's keep reading. We know some of these verses. It says in verse 9, For they prophesy a lie to you in my name, God says. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, When 70 years have been fulfilled for Babylon, I will visit you and establish my good word to you to return you to this place. So Hananiah is saying, Hey, in two years it's over. What's God say? Well, in 70 years it'll be over. In 70 years it'll be over. And then we, most of us know Jeremiah 29, 11. It's probably a favorite verse for some of us. It says, God says to them, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for peace and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. So here's the question. Here's the question for those in Babylonian exile. Here's the question for Christians in exile here on the earth. How do you live in hope for a future that's still 70 years away? How do you live in hope for a future that's still 70 years away. He says, God says to the people who are in Babylon and they're going to be their generation and their children and their children's children the next 70 years, they're going to be there. He says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. 
plans for a peace and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. How did they, how do we live in hope of a future that's still some time away? And that's what the book of Daniel is about. Daniel shows us how to live in hope for a future that's still a long way away. He shows them how to do it, and he shows us how to do it. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and following again, we are exiles and strangers here on the earth. Go back to Daniel chapter 1. Let's keep reading. Daniel chapter 1. Uh, you you kind of know the, the rest of the story here, but in verse 4 it says, uh, it's talking about the people who he wants, youth in whom there's no defect, who are good of good appearance, showing insight in every branch of wisdom, being thoroughly knowledgeable and discerning knowledge, and who have the ability to stand in the king's palace. And he said to, to him, to teach them the literature and the tongue of the Chaldeans. Basically, teach them the ways, indoctrinate them in the ways, brainwash them in the ways of the Babylonians. Take these Jews, their best and their brightest and make them Babylonians and make them my servants is what he wants. Now here's the situation. If you or I or many of our, anybody that we know probably would be in that situation, if we were in the situation that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in, this is a situation that is ripe for rebellion. God, what have you done? God, where are you? God, why did you let this thing happen? God, why am I here? And in the very next sentence, it tells us, and the king, not only is he saying, hey, they're going to be my slaves, they're going to be my servants, teach them our ways, take them away from their ways, but then he says, and lay a spread of food out for them. I mean the best. You can take it from my own table, the king says. Give them the best of my food. Teach them the benefits of being my servants. Don't just force them to be my servants. Show them the benefits of being my servants. Doesn't Satan do that to us? He entices us with the delicacies of this world in the same way that King Nebuchadnezzar is trying to entice these young men with the delicacies of his table, right? Things that, they, things that would look good, things that would smell good. Can you imagine? Hey, listen, it's about 900 miles from Jerusalem uh, to Babylon. Probably took three or four months for them to get there. How hungry do you think they were at the end of that trip? And then the king lays out a spread in front of them. Can you imagine the smells? Can you imagine how hungry they were for that type of thing? And we know what happens if we go down to verse number 8. It says, But Daniel set in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Two times in that one verse it says, defile himself. He does not want to defile himself. And there it's certainly concerned with the Old Testament laws of what they can eat and what they were not supposed to eat. And there were reasons and purposes for that. But what's the application for us today? What defiles us as Christians? Well, if you would turn over to Mark chapter 7, verses 18 through 23, you can turn there if you want to. I'm just going to tell you what it says in essence. Mark chapter 7, remember that's where uh, some of it, uh, Jesus' uh, apostles are, are eating without inwa- or with, with unwashed hands, and the Pharisees and the scribes and those people say, hey, why is he breaking the, the commandment of Moses, the tradition of Moses, by eating without washing hands? And they, I've said this every time we've talked about this. Is it a good idea to wash your hands before you eat? Yes, okay, children, good idea to wash your hands before you eat. Always a good idea, certainly. But Jesus makes the point, hey, washing, not washing or unwashing your hands, not washing your hands before you eat, that doesn't defile someone. What defiles someone is what comes out of their heart. And it talks about out of the heart comes deceits and lying and murder and adulteries. These are the things that defile a person. 
Daniel said in his heart, I'm not going to defile myself. What is it in your life, what is it in my life that we defile ourselves with because we allow it to get into our eyes, into our ears, into our thoughts, and into our hearts? And from the heart are the things that defile a person. It's not about food for us. For Daniel, it was about food. But it was a big temptation. There was a huge temptation. He was hungry. He had traveled a long way. He thought that he, maybe he thought he was going to die. Probably thought that he was going to be a slave in a terrible position. You know, who knows what he, was, he thought he was going to eat. You know, the leftovers, the crumbs, the, the nasty, the dirty, whatever he could find, just scrounge together. And instead, there's this spread of food in front of him. How many do you think? We don't know. How many do you think of Daniel's friends whom he knew of the nobility who saw that and they didn't take a a second to run to that food and to dig in? Daniel probably was tempted to do the same thing, but he stopped and he said in his heart, I'm not going to defile myself. We need to do the same thing with whatever struggle or difficulty that we have. Notice also that it says towards the end of that verse that he sought permission from the commander of the officials. That's an important thing. Verse number nine. Now God granted Daniel loving kindness and compassion before the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I'm afraid. Okay, so this is a Babylonian. This is important. This is a Babylonian likely that is in charge of these uh, exiles, uh, in, in charge of their training up, in charge of getting them ready. I am afraid of the Lord, the king, who has appointed your food and your drink for why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then he would make me forfeit my head to the king. You would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please, notice what he said, please test your servants for 10 days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Again, we probably know the rest of the story. For 10 days, they have this test. They basically are drinking water and eating vegetables and, and they end up looking better and they're, they're very wise and very smart. And then towards the end of the chapter, it says even at the end of the three-year period, they were supposed to be trained for three years in the ways of the Babylonians. There, there was no one smarter, better looking, more capable. These, these guys were the top of the class. Daniel was number one. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, 1A, 1B, 1C. They're, they're right there at the top of the class. And then of note, The last verse in chapter 1, notice what it says. And Daniel continued to serve until the first year of Cyrus the king. You know how long that was? Seventy years. Seventy years. What happened at the end of 70 years? They went back to Jerusalem. For 70 years, a man who was in exile, probably a very young man, teenager, maybe even a, a young teenager at the time, said in his heart not to defile himself. And because of that, he serves under at least three kings and at least two empires. That doesn't happen normally, right? It doesn't happen normally that there, when there's a regime change. It doesn't even happen in, in our country, right? When there's a regime change that someone maintains the position that they're in. But here's a foreigner who at first was considered, even, even going on, Daniel is, is persecuted because of his, his foreignness, But he's able to maintain his position throughout 70 years of life and all of the difficulty and the ups and downs of kingdoms and kings. He probably serves more than three kings. Some of them just don't last as long as he does. Some of them are assassinated. And he may have been their servant or may not have been. But but because he he chose, he decided in his heart not to defile himself, he is successful for the next 70 years. Let's notice four things as we close tonight. Number one, 
at the beginning of the chapter, when God's temple is ransacked and his treasures are taken away, it seems like God is powerless. But by the end of the first chapter, he has four servants more powerful than anyone else save the king in the kingdom of Babylon. God was in control the entire time. What about in our lives? When it doesn't seem like God is acting, is God in control? Absolutely. When it doesn't seem like God is acting, does God have a plan? Absolutely. When it doesn't always go our way and things don't always work out the way that we want them to, does God have a plan and is God working? Absolutely, he does. He's in control. Number two, heroism or being a hero doesn't have to be rude. Did you hear me? Love is not rude. I think we talked about that this morning. Love is courteous, right? Heroism doesn't have to be rude. It doesn't have to be outright revolt. It doesn't have to be outright, you know, fighting against the powers that you're at odds with. Instead, Daniel is kind as he holds on to his convictions. He asks for permission. He says, please. Maybe we should do such thing as well. Love is not rude. Again, he has loyalty even to his enemies, but he is subversive by trying to make them better. Number three, success is found in resolve, not rebellion. All of us at some point in our lives, when things haven't gone our way, when we're in a position maybe similar to Daniel's, we've always been tempted, perhaps, to rebel against God. Instead, Daniel finds success in resolving not to defile his heart. There will be a time in your life when you will be tempted and you will have plenty of opportunities to defile yourself. Will you rebel against God or will you resolve to stay with God? We need to see everything, our education, any knowledge that we receive from people at work or people at school or people in our life, the information that we gather from the world, from the internet, from the news. We need to see all of these things through the eyes of God. Daniel was able to do that. He knew and recognized that God was in control no matter what information came his way. He saw things through his faith in God. And number four, which will be important for our ongoing study of Daniel, this sets up a recurring theme throughout the book of Daniel. Rebellion against God by human kingdoms always fails. Rebellion against God by human kingdoms always fails. It did thousands of years ago and it does today. Rebellion against God always leads to failure. It starts here in the book of Daniel with the example of Judah. It will happen to Babylon. It will happen to the kingdom of Cyrus, and it will happen to every kingdom that comes afterwards. Rebellion against God always leads to failure. So from tonight, I hope that you'll understand and appreciate and take with you the idea that will you choose not to defile yourself? What is it that Satan has laid the spread out in front of you and said, hey, that's some good stuff. Take and eat. And will you say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to defile myself with these choice foods that the world may offer. The next time that you have a chance to be a hero or to stand up for what's right, will you do it rudely or will you do it lovingly the way that God has called us to? The next time you have a chance to rebel, will you resolve not to? And will you realize that no matter what kingdom you may be a part of, kingdoms that rebel against God throughout history fail and While we are privileged and loyal to our country in America, our job and our resolve should be to be subversive to make this country a better place because ultimately we're exiles 
even within these borders. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the book of Daniel. We thank you for the life that he lived in a very difficult situation. In a situation to this point in our lives, we have no reference for or understanding of. God, we pray that you will help us as we live in this world where uh, Satan is the king, that we will rebel against him, but we'll do it in the right ways. And we'll try to stand firm against the schemes of the devil with our armor on and being subversive by trying to help the people around us who, uh, who may not be on our side and may not even realize they're on Satan's side, help them to become better people and certainly followers of Jesus. Lord, help us to, to choose and to decide and to confirm within our hearts and within our minds not to defile ourselves with whatever we may see or hear or experience, but instead to set ourselves apart for your service. Lord, we pray that you will be with us tonight and use us for your glory. Be with us tomorrow and every day, whether we are together or apart. Use us for your glory and forgive us when we fail. Thank you for your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.